everyone. Welcome to episode 18. Today's chat is a little different format from what we normally do, and we're calling this our Site Bite. Jamal and I want to discuss the topic of DEIB and a little bit from the tech team's lens, but also opening up to other voices. We have a new friend joining us, Dan Ramirez. He is looking to join as a co-host, so he'll be contributing to the conversation today and also back from the site, Tuta Betitao, but I said your name wrong. Tuta Betitao, <laughs> okay. right? Yeah, it's okay though. <laughs> Let's just leave that in there. Everyone needs to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. say it with me, everyone. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. So today's topic, DEIB, this is a fascinating conversation that I think each of us have ways to contribute. So we'll just keep it conversational. And I thought we'd open up with a question of just what does this work look like in your world? Should we first start off by explaining what the acronym is? Let's do it. So diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. So what does that look like in your environments? And I'll just state from from my environment at Colton, I've been here approximately a little over a year. And one of the things that I thought was really cool, they actually had a mission plan addressing is focusing on equity. And they in June, we actually shut down the whole district, had district staff uh, address the three pillars that we want to focus on is professionalism, professional development, and equity. And you can see the most difficult piece that a lot of administrators have to tackle is equity, understanding what it is, trying to explain it to their staff, having a fear of explaining it to their staff because of fear of the conversation that's going to result as it, as it being brought up because they feel they're not in a place where they can touch on it because they have inequity or biases in their own lenses. So it makes it very difficult for them to even have the conversation. So, so that's just the gist of what's actually going on in our district at this current point. I think that's such a good point. I mean, especially since we start talking about definitions of even the words we're talking about today, I think that's where we notice in our district, the biggest struggles were, it's just, how do we define this? What does this mean? What are the impacts? We recently had a some professional development on this topic, and it was fascinating because she brought in kind of a more research-based approach. And she said, when you're looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion in the corporate world, it can come across in a few different ways. And one can just be purely transactional. Like we're doing this because it's going to have this effect. And that right. was super interesting. And then there's also the moral side. We're doing this because it's the right thing. And it's just, you have to decide how you're going to approach it and get those definitions in place. That's really good. We're just kind of looking at our profession as a whole. And I mean, technology, even outside of education, it's just not as diverse as it should be in some ways. And as someone who comes from an underrepresented group, it's really important to do to feel like you have a sense of belonging in the profession and that this is a place for you because I feel like sometimes it can be really intimidating. I know personally and many other people that I've spoken to kind of ended up in tech without really planning to. And when you don't necessarily feel like you look like everyone else or everyone accepts you for who you are. And I, and I should say, I'm fortunate where I don't necessarily feel like I don't belong, but I know that that's not always the case for other underrepresented groups. So I think it's really important to, at least for California IT and education specifically, not to just say our acronym, but for us specifically, making those who are IT professionals in education who are in underrepresented groups feel like they belong in this profession and open it to people who may have interest in becoming a technologist, but 
don't know where to start or are intimidated or anything like that. So really just working on making it welcoming. And, you know, we talked about DEIB and I think I had heard that the acronym actually changed and added the B from Jamie last year. I think you brought it up in one of our other mm-hmm. podcast episodes. And I thought that component is so important, especially in the work that site does, because we're supposed to be the professional home for our technologists in California. And we want them to feel like they belong. Right. I think it's important too, beyond just making somebody feel welcome and belong, we all come from different backgrounds. And like uh, Jamal mentioned previously, we all have different biases. Whether we know it or don't know it within ourselves, we all come from different avenues of life. And we all have these preconceptions that we follow and believe, but having that blending of different groups and personalities, you Mm -hmm. see the world through many different lenses we could help our customers in ways that can be better attuned to what they need because we have a a blending of uh, different groups of people that have different understandings of uh, where our people come from and what their needs are. And I think to the point, just like we all have biases sometimes or oftentimes now in society, it's always like only one group is the victim and one group shouldn't even have a say. So I was in our equity task force we were in breakout rooms and one of the individuals saying like, yeah, some people need to be told basically where they're wrong. Like they came with this total mindset that I'm right in this conversation and I need to come in and tell this person where they're wrong. Not understanding they're already at fault because they're not open because maybe your own perception and your own biases is steering you to your own opinion, thinking you're right. Your opinion is more valued than the opinion of the other person just by your perception of them. So I think we have to have honest, transparent conversations and also just do some self-evaluation and understand we may not be right in our own thinking as well. And that may lead to not, I don't want to use the word compromise, but goals that best meet everybody, right? So Mm -hmm. by having those different viewpoints and having those heated conversations with people could be a heated conversation in a professional manner. That's what we're all trying to do is get to a place where we can get to a mutual understanding and we could all move into a direction that we're all willing to follow where we don't want people to feel like they're being left behind or their opinion doesn't matter and they don't have to say. Everybody's opinion is valuable. Everybody's opinion has merit and it should be a part of the conversation. Yeah, and it just comes with common respect. And I think to this point, that be we all should have a sense of belonging in any part of the conversation and feel our input is valued just as well as anybody else's in the group. On that topic, like do you have initiatives for staff, students, or families? Jamal, you talk a little bit about your equity group. Are there specific actions that you're taking around this work? Yeah, they have a series of um, meetings. Site administrators were basically got abreast of the different modules and the key pieces. So like I said, equity, but then the administrators are supposed to have these smaller conversations at their sites and address those. But as far as the task force, we are looking at inequities in every sense of the uh, shape, form, and fashion, whether it is with technology, whether it's resources or it's school sites in a more affluent area, because we expand like 50 mile radius. So some of our pockets are very affluential, others are not so much and they're in low poverty areas. And then just considering our own biases in the group, speaking at Colson, Cosson, however you want to say it, tomato, tomato, ideas we were doing as far as student, because our district, our students, uh, 
basically our black African-American students, they're low on all the test scores, but high on the absentee, high on suspension. And we're looking at the data and we're just as administrators and leaders, we're looking at it and we're just making assumptions of why this and why that. And like the best avenue to find out what's the reason because of this. So let's say, let's ask the students. I think we broke it out to like 40 administrators to go to all our sites. So we're going in groups of two or three, we're doing empathy interviews and we're asking the students, who do you model yourself after? Do you feel comfortable in your school? Do you feel safe? Do you feel like you belong? What are some of the issues that have arisen? Does your community have high expectations for you to exceed in this area? So things of that nature. So we just started last week. I, curious to hear the feedback from the other groups my group will be doing the r's at the high school next week so we should get a lot of good feedback because i'm actually interested i want to talk to them and i'll dress down like a student like 21 jump street so i can connect (laughs) with my days and whatnot but no i actually i just feel there's power in their voices and i think the most of the time they've been unheard and we're just doing a lot of assumption and just throwing stuff at the wall and hopefully it'll stick so that's some of the key things that we're working right now but even at the conference i just felt like we're all still trying to figure out how to address this issue. It is a gaping issue. Even just this morning, I was getting my kids ready and they're watching the Disney Channel. DJ Masks came on. I'm like, oh, they got some new characters because it used to be three, like Owlette, Catboy, and uh, Gecko or something. So now they have like six people. And then they're like, daughter's like, yeah, they added some brown kids too because she first said blacks because we do have brown skin. She says brown. And so it's good that the kids recognize it too. And so when you see yourself in something, representation, it matters. So, and she's second grade, so it hits them young and you recognize it even later in life. So I see there's other fields that are trying to address it and I'm sure they've heard opinions and voices and feedback. And so I think in the district, we're trying our best to do that as well, as far as also hiring people that look like the students so that they can go to them if they need, because you feel more comfortable with those, you know, or that look like you. So that's some of the things we're doing at this point in time. One of the things I really liked about the concept of DEIB is the accessibility. I think we saw a lot of polarization over diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives through various companies that took positions. There were kind of extremes on both sides. And then that left a lot of questioning about what the work is and what we should be focusing on. So when I first learned about the belongingness add-on, that you really can't argue with, that really can't be political. This is important for our society. And in my little world, I try to think about what can the tech department do? Because we have our district level initiatives, we have our committees, we have our three-year plans and all of those, that's that's really important work to raise awareness and, and to get stuff done. So I specifically looked at from that belongingness angle, how am I advertising positions in my department? And am I looking at the language of the job description and understanding that women tend to underestimate their abilities and they'll look at a job description and go, no, I can't do that versus a man may go, oh yeah, I got that. I'll figure it out. So we, we miss opportunities. So I applied that when I looked at my job descriptions to see like, what is welcoming? What is inviting? And if I couldn't get that quite negotiated with the union for time, I made sure like the blurb for the job description you know, was invitational. So one specific example, I had a data specialist leave my department a few weeks ago and I could have easily just let HR push out the 
new job description and go out to the district and that's it. So instead I thought, okay, I have two opportunities. I can put it on LinkedIn and write something personal. And we got applications based on that. I've never done that before. And I was excited for that. And specifically two women applied because of that. And then the second one was a note to staff. I explained the, why the position was opening and what specific skills I was looking for in the candidates. And two people said that they read my email and that's why they showed up for the interviews. And it was just that personal invitation. It was, Hey, if you like the lookup and concatenate, you should join my team. <laughs> And so I think like being deliberate about like where we have those moments to be invitational and to show like what the culture they'll be joining is important. And the other note I just kind of quickly want to add is some of my research talked about when we are having interviews, we can go into small talk and that can unintentionally bias you to somebody that's like you. So you have to be really mindful of those like intermediary conversations and really try to stick to the script. Or if you do hold those small talk conversations, just give yourself that gut check. Like, am I leaning towards this person in terms of fit when fit really isn't the best measurement. Like you have to be mindful of that. So those are two things that we're really looking at in our little tech world. Yeah. And we always try to, you know, push higher for attitude and things like that, depending on the position as well, because it's exactly what you said about the job descriptions. I mean, when I started at Irvine, the job description was a web and digital media developer, but it was for Mm -hmm. someone who wanted, or they needed a videographer, but the job description had Mm -hmm. all of this like web UI UX design stuff. And I read the job description. I was like, I can't do that. I can't do any Mm -hmm. of that. I have a marketing background, you know, Mm -hmm. I was like, there's no way I could do this. And then my friend talked to Chris Linville, who was the one hiring Mm -hmm. for the position and was like, no, this is a videography position. The job description just kind of fit it Mm -hmm. in there. There was like one line about videography. Mm -hmm. And so it's like you said, making those connections. That's the only way I would have probably even thought to apply for that job because I looked at what the other criteria was. And I thought, no way. And then it's funny, I was told afterward that I wasn't necessarily the most technically qualified for videography, Mm -hmm. which I didn't think I was going to get the job to be totally honest. And shout out to Chris Linville for taking a chance on me. But uh, because I didn't want to be a videographer, it wasn't my background, but they told me I had a great attitude and that I seemed like I was willing to learn and they took a chance. And I was so appreciative Mm -hmm. of that. So I worked really hard and you know, and then naturally they were like, hey, you have good project management skills because I was used to working on tight timelines and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I was able to shift my career completely into something that fit way better with my skill set. And to your point, it's also identifying those, I guess, skills in the people around you as well and thinking, hey, this person might be a great fit for this position because I know for our SIS support staff, they were the ones who were the office assistants. They were working in the office in Aries every single day. So they were the ones who knew the system inside and out. And it was just a matter of teaching them some of the technical skills when they came on board. But I mean, they knocked it out of the park and they were awesome. So it's identifying those people too, where you might not traditionally look for some of these positions to potentially fill these positions. Mm -hmm. I'm also thinking about how do we let people know what skills we expect in the position. So more internal candidates or diverse candidates would think like, oh, let me prep for this. You know, we have a pretty diverse classified staff in our district and less diverse among the certificated staff. And we're trying to ask those questions, why and what draws people to certain positions and how can we give people more access? So with this, like I said, the data specialist position that opened up, it was very specific skill set we were looking for, but a lot of it you could be trained up. And so could I put like by job description, like those essential skills and certifications, and then people could have a little bit more access by prepping that way. We hired a, as for one of our field techs, he came from MNO 
but he went to school he was training he was constantly trying to get in the door but then we had an opportunity with some LCAP dollars where we opened up like think four additional positions so he applied and he was one of the top candidates and he's very solid but as a result other MNO staff now they're coming up to me and saying how what do I need to learn what do I need to study to get into this positions okay. so it's good and I think just to the point like any kind of position we just have this set mindset or this template you need to look this way or act this way or function this way mm-hmm. are all unique and we have different personalities capabilities and so like even coming in this position i'm like i think even just interview i'm like i'm just gonna be me i'm gonna be free to be my normal self when i straight when i come to the door i can't be like this cookie cutter CTO, whatever that looks like. I'm like, I got here by my personality and my ideas. And so I'm going to stick to that. Whether I do wear a suit with J's or I wear a beanie sometimes, that is who I am. And like that personal touch connects with people because they feel you're genuine. And I think in order for you to feel like you belong, you don't have to be like everybody else. You should feel safe in being who you are. And that hopefully that just uh, will inspire other people to be who they are. And like, hey, I don't actually do kind of connect more with you because you're just being real and I should feel safe to be real just as well. So I like that with our department. So it's just people are attracted to our department and I shouldn't bring this up, but we had a DOJ. uh, Well, we had we have to comply to some DOJ because of certain things, some inequities as far as the services we were giving a certain student population. And we have to present to the district and everybody's so serious presenting because like the DOJ, we're going to get arrested if we don't comply, blah, blah, blah. blah. And so then I'm going on with this podcasting equipment. I changed my voice to some monster or something like, and like I turn on sirens and police sounds. And then I'm like, I'm acting up, but then I also come to a point like none of us volunteered for this. And like, this is collectively, we had to get through this together. And I said, whatever my spill, but it resonated with a lot of people because they started emailing in when they see me on campus. It's like, you were like the realest person on there. Like you spoke as a human. We all are human and we have to find that niche to connect with everybody else instead of trying to be this box facade or I don't know, this image that it's not real, that nobody can connect with. If we want to actually address inequities, inclusion, belonging, all that. So that's my opinion. I really like what you said about having people from your MNO come over and talk to the tech department. We had something very similar at my district where a custodian did a job shadowing day and the custodian wanted to get into technology and it was super cool. He went and talked to the user support, got tips. Hey, what should I learn if I wanted to get into technology as user support? Then he came over to the engineers. Hey, what is it that you guys do? What did you guys learn? What is the path you took? And we got to give really good tips to somebody who just didn't know where to go. And I think just having that option and that opportunity to learn and figure out, hey, what's even my path to get into technology? It was not only beneficial to that person, but it made me feel real awesome too, to be able to give somebody that opportunity to figure out, hey, what path do I need to take? What type of training and skill sets do I need to develop to move forward, to move my life forward? So I love being that that mentor. And I gave the person my number, I said, hey, call me anytime you want. You need to move forward to figure out what classes you need to take or what kind of cert you need to go after. Feel free to give me a ring. I'll give you a holler and, and let you know what I think you should move, what you should do to go forward. Mm-hmm. 
I think to that effect too, it's almost like we need to go a layer deeper. And I actually have a ton of admiration for Jamie and her student tech department because I always point back to it. It's an amazing thing. And part of our presentation at Cozen had to do with the fact that, you know, there are not students of color pursuing degrees in technology. Mm-hmm. So how do you make a profession more diverse if the people who will help make it more diverse aren't pursuing these degrees. So it's almost we're stuck in this place where it's hard to diversify if it's not available. And then on top of that, education specifically is competing with the private sector. So people will get to work remote or have bigger salaries. And I shouldn't say this because it doesn't sound like I'm selling education right now, but I promise it's (laughs) way more rewarding (laughs) than the private sector. Yeah. So it's, difficult work that takes a lot of time. And I think the sooner that we can get involved with students, the better it is for us in the long term. And I know like when we would post jobs, we would post to college job boards because especially like for the help desk technicians or the entry level techs, because we wanted to capture them straight out of college if we could. And even if, you know, they're only there for one or two years to build their resume. I know that's a huge thing I hear a lot where, and I get, you know, like you don't want to pay for someone's certifications and things like that. And then they go somewhere else. But at the same time, I'm also of the mindset of if I get two or three good years of work out of someone who's going to make monumental change to like our practices and really help our organization move forward, I'm much more in favor of that than someone who's there for a long time and not necessarily there for the right reasons and not looking to make as big of an impact. So I think too, like the sooner we can get involved with students and I feel like you've mentioned it a few times and we've had some of your students, but maybe talking a little bit more about your tech program would be great. So first, I think there's just something special about technology teams and education, like going back to what Jamal said, like we have this ability to kind of reinvent and reimagine and experiment and fail. And that is a privilege that we all have have in the tech department that yeah people want to be on our team so shout out to us like it's good stuff so yeah with our students you know we have a couple different avenues that we've created we have an internship program where kids can apply and they work on special projects for me you know whatever their passion project is my rule is you're just you're just working to make the community better so whatever that is so one intern i'm really excited just joined and she wants to focus on racism and discrimination at our school site and she called us out on things that she hears in the classroom and you know that's a big part of our initiative is how do we stop hurtful and harmful language? And she wants to be a part of the solution. And she wants to, I mean, my vision for this is she helps me create language that we give to the kids to speak up when they hear something. I can write something, but it's not, I'm not the right voice. So getting a student's voice and getting her friends involved. And then we'll have, you know, some social media backup for that. So this is the first time I'll have, you know, a specific DEIB intern working on this. And then she'll also be working on our belongingness campaign just to make sure that everybody feels like they do have a place. So I'm really excited about that work. And then we have a technology kind of oversight committee where they're tech council. And then, yeah, they look around the campus for challenges and try to solve them. So one group, they decided they wanted the kids to know what the courses are really like on campus. So they're making promo videos with the teachers of like, if you're taking AP Euro, this is what you're getting yourself into. And they're going to interview the teachers and get like a synopsis, like college level style. What's amazing about this work is sometimes it takes two to three years for the kids projects to launch. So you just, as the adult leader, you have to have patience that, you know, they may have this idea, but they're busy. They have a lot going on, but the students, you know, to some of our earlier points, like we have to find the voices. We have to seek them out. They don't always get the emails or the invitations. So when you're creating these groups, whether it's your hiring panel or looking for applicants, like look for who's missing. Who are you not seeing show up and try to figure out why? 
this might be a perfect place to transition. We've talked a lot about hiring and staffing mm-hmm. and like filling our team. What about the digital equity piece? That's another big part of our role. And maybe we can conclude this mini episode with some conversation about how we make this work better for our students. It can be a real challenge to get technology in the hands of all all students and bridge that gap for the the students that may not have the economic stature at home to have the same type of level of technology in their household as other students. You know, there's socioeconomic gaps. I think that's where one-to-one really comes in and gives everybody the the opportunity to, to at least be on the same playing field because they have the same access to technology that other students do. And that's huge. That's big. And it's not just for one-to-one going home. I come from a county office of ed where We have incarcerated students. So how do you fill that gap for students that are incarcerated? So our students do. It takes a lot. It's a way bigger challenge to secure the device in a way where your probation partners will be happy and the students still get the technology access they need. So it's something you have to be very mindful of and you got to keep, since you do want to keep technology in hand as students, you have to be very mindful and be watching and facilitate in a way that's beneficial to the student, but still meets the need of the environment and the education. I've sat in a few parent meetings and even the parents, they have a desire to work with their kids, but they want training just as well. So like when you're in the community, when you're there, who's not exposed to technology, the whole community needs assistance, not just the kids, but the parents or the grandparents who are supervising the kids. So that's an effort that we're going to try to make as a team, just being more present in these meetings and sessions and come up with ideas where we can provide them training, whether it's with hands-on or whether it's with video sometime or just training the trainers. So we need to find that niche to reach out to them so they do understand the importance of technology and and all the benefits that come with it. Because if we're talking about the young kids, a lot of the kids, what are they exposed to? Like, I want to be a nurse, policeman, doctor, things, but they don't think of IT because that's not in their purview. They've never been exposed to that. So just having the ability to show them what they're capable of, because some also just have this perception of IT and it's this scary thing. And so they don't want to go that route. They'll go to a safe route, which appears to be safe. But if they knew all that's entailed in IT, then they could potentially find a niche or something that does work for them. Yeah. I always try to tell, especially kids these days, I'm like, whether or not you realize it, you're a technologist. You're on TikTok. You're editing videos. You're troubleshooting (laughs) your phone. You're helping your parents with their iPhone. You know, it's like whether or not you realize it. And it's so funny because... I don't even remember where it started, but now I always incorporate when I'm doing technology presentations to people who are not technologists. I always ask, when was the first time that you can remember that you really engaged with technology and enjoyed it? And the story that I always share, and it's kind of embarrassing, is MySpace, because that's where I learned how to do HTML, because I really wanted, you know, this awesome profile with the cool song and glitter comments or whatever, or I wanted to hide my top eight so I wouldn't get into arguments with my friends. So I had to learn how to code. And I didn't think of myself as learning technology in that sense. I thought of it as, I'm going to look really cool on the internet, which I didn't. So I think that's the thing too, is kind of making it relevant and and saying whether or not you realize it, you're doing this. And then to Dan's point about just providing access, it's almost that quality of access, right? And, And to Jamal's point too, of providing the training for the parents, because you gave two students a device. One student's parents might be 
an engineer or a developer and they're comfortable helping troubleshoot with technology, another student might not have that opportunity to have that at home. So a homework assignment that may take an hour for one student might take three hours for another just in trying to ensure that they can actually do the assignment before doing the assignment. So I think that's another challenge too. And it's like, how do you do that as the IT department? It's almost like with the pandemic, I know it became an extension of troubleshooting at home and things like that. And everyone listening is probably going to kill me because they're like, no, don't. I don't I, we don't have the capacity to do that. We hardly have the capacity to do it at the school site. So I think that's the struggle too, of how do we make sure that it's quality access? It's not just, we gave them mm-hmm. a device in a hotspot. So important because yeah, I think we first tried to tackle devices, then we tried to tackle connection and now we're talking about skills, but it's gotta be a quality device. It's gotta be a quality connection. It's not enough to have a hotspot. You need high speed internet. And right. yeah, cause to your point, like a kid could get assigned a video to watch. It may take them much longer to get through that without the right connection speeds. And and we're making those assumptions about what access kids at home. And I love the call out about skill set. I think that's my interpretation of another digital equity piece is ensuring that the parents have the skills. Sometimes moms will email me and like embarrassingly say, like, I don't know enough about technology to support my kid at home anymore. And you know, and I'm like, let's get you coached up. Like we'll hold some sessions. Mm -hmm. The student interns help design lessons for parents and help me during the summer with little boot camps and things like that. So we're trying to find creative ways to help that. But yeah, when you hit that cry for help, help of, I wish I could help my kid a little bit more. It's not that they can't do the math with their kid. It's like they can't even access the, the homework right. anymore. But I do uh, relate to that MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and me, more so also BlackPlanet.com. So <laughs> for the Black people. <laughs> I think I got into MySpace just as soon as it closed. So <laughs> I think I was right there. I had the glitter coming down the screen and then they just shut it down. <laughs> Tom didn't want to be your friend. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this kind of gets us towards the end of our episode. I just want to thank everybody for your candor, for your ability to kind of be vulnerable and share some personal stories. It really helps us with the conversation and, and kind of create these definitions together. And finally, everybody else will get a turn to go, but I just want to give a shout out to Site. I think that the regional group, so Tuda, the work that you lead in membership services, has really given me the professional network I need to be successful. And it came from an invitation from another site member, like, hey, you should step up and be more a part of this regional group. And that push has led to amazing things. So shout out to Eric, if you're listening. <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. And for those of you listening who are not involved in your regional group, get involved. <laughs> and if you don't know how to, please contact me and I'm happy to help. Or if you just want to get involved in general, we're always looking for volunteers. We could use more podcast volunteers as well. So, <laughs> also want to say, hey, thanks for having me. This is my first time on here and actually talking. And uh, you guys have been very <laughs> inviting and welcoming. And I feel like I belong. And Excellent. I just want to give a shout out to everybody out there listening. Uh, we appreciate your listens and uh, we keep doing what we do just for you.